0: Hello. This is Dr. S. Mocker, and welcome to today's session on the Black Power Movement and Vietnam. So, we're now moving into the social movements of the 1960s. Today, we're going to focus on the civil rights movement as it enters a more radical phase in the 1960s. And then, we're also going to talk about how America gets increasingly involved in Vietnam during the presidency of LBJ. Next session, we'll be specifically talking about. Sixties social revolution. So if you're waiting for the hippies and counterculture and religion and all of those kinds of movements like feminism and Latino activism, all of that jazz, that's going to come up next session. I didn't want to scrimp on the 60s social movements portion, so that's why I've broken them down into two sessions. So as we move into talking about rights movements and social movements in the 1960s, it's important to talk about the 60s as a decade, as a whole. So if the 1950s 50s are all about the idea of cultural conformity because uh, people being paranoid about being labeled communist during the Red Scare. The 60s are all about dissent. So this is where dissent, where criticizing the government, we're criticizing the way society works, we're criticizing the norms, all become mainstream. So the 60s is really defined by protest movements particularly driven by young people and protesting all different kinds of reforms in society, whether we're talking about the continuing African American civil rights movement, whether we're talking about the anti-war movement, which will escalate as our involvement in Vietnam escalates, the women's rights movement, LGBTQ rights, Native American rights, Latino rights, all of these different pushes to try to make society more inclusive of all people and not just including or benefiting an elite few. This is what really marks the 1960s. And we're going to start today in talking about how the civil rights movement starts to shift as we get to the middle of the 1960s. So in earlier sessions, we talked about the civil rights movement and how since World War I, groups like the NAACP or the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People had really adopted a strategy of breaking down segregation by launching legal challenges to different areas of the system. So breaking down segregation in housing with the 1948 Supreme Court case Shelley B. Kramer, breaking down segregation in education with the 1954 case of Brown versus Board of Education before the Supreme Court. In the 40s and the 50s is when we start to see that strategy, which had been adopted decades prior, start to finally bear fruit. And as we talked about in an earlier session, this is going to be followed by public protests of civil disobedience, nonviolence, to try to highlight the injustice of other laws that maintained a system of segregation based on race. And one of the hallmarks of the movement in the 1950s and the early 1960s was this committal to nonviolence. Like we talked about, youth protesters like SNCC or the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee launched protests like sit-ins to occupy segregated spaces to highlight segregation. They launched voter registration drives. They challenged segregation and things like freedom rides to show that segregation was still being illegally carried out in public transportation. But as we get to the middle of the 1960s, there's going to be some dis- Discontent with how far nonviolent protests can get you, and how far the current leadership of the movement, which at this point in time is dominated by a group called the Southern Christian Leadership Council and people like Martin Luther King Jr., how much do they actually reflect the will of the average person? So there's a lot of discontent. There's a generational clash between the younger organizers of SNCC and some of these, again, older, more conservative ministers who had dominated the direction of the Movement. There's also a tension between people who want to continue to focus on things like voting rights in the South versus people who want to highlight socioeconomic inequality in northern and western urban areas. This tension starts to come to a head in the middle of the 1960s. And this is what we call the Black power movement. Stokely Carmichael is actually the first person to use the phrase black power in 1966. And Stokely Carmichael was a member of SNCC, so he was one of these student activists, and he coined black power to mean potentially a variety of things. Black power could mean agitating for giving African Americans more political power. It could be pushing for more economic opportunities and success. It could mean the potential for revolution versus a racist power structure, it could be compatible with some of these earlier civil rights focuses, right, on breaking down discrimination and segregation and things like education and the workplace, but it could also be interpreted in a way that made it much more similar to anti-colonial movements happening in places like Africa and Asia during the same time period. And in fact, if you are a fan of black exploitation pics, there's a movie from the early 1970s called The Spook Who Sacked by the Door, which is based on a novel of the same name published in the late 60s. And the premise of the novel is in the name of proving enlightened racial enlightenment, the CIA recruits their first black spy. This one guy makes it through the training, but they were expecting everybody to wash out. So when this guy unexpectedly makes it through the Through the training, they just give him a menial job. Basically, he becomes a copy boy. But he still goes through all this CIA training, including on counterinsurgency tactics. And so then he decides he's going to leave the CIA. He tells them he's going to go back and work with impoverished youth in his native Chicago. They all laud him, saying, oh, that's so great. You want to help at your race? And then he actually works to teach these teenagers in urban Chicago how to be revolutionaries and the whole premise of the film is that they're training to launch an insurgency against the United States government because of this legacy of systemic racism. So this was a film that was designed very much and in fact if you look up the trailer on YouTube designed very much to scare the bejesus out of white people but it does also both the film and the book make a lot of interesting parallels between what's being experienced by minorities in the United States and What's being experienced by these people working to gain independence in these colonies? Malcolm X definitely draws a lot of parallels between the experience of African Americans and people internationally in places like Africa and Asia. Malcolm X is oftentimes held up as the complete opposite of Martin Luther King Jr., the Magneto to Martin Luther King Jr.'s Professor X, if you want to be nerdy. That's not quite accurate, but they did have some key differences. So Malcolm X was born Malcolm Little, and he had a very rough early life. As a young man, he got involved in some crime. He ended up going to prison. And while he was in prison, he converted to a religious group called the Nation of Islam. It's important to understand that the Nation of Islam is not mainstream Islam. So this was a group that took a lot of ideas from Islam, but also had a lot of ideas very reminiscent of Marcus Garvey. So this notion of self-sufficiency of wanting to separate because there was no way white mainstream society was going to accept them as equal. So to create kind of separate spaces where they could ensure their own equality. So the Nation of Islam is this very interesting mix of world religion and anti-colonial politics. So Malcolm X becomes kind of the foil to Martin Luther King Jr. because he is much more candid when he speaks. Martin Luther King Jr. in many ways had to develop the way of speaking style in part because not only a class difference, the very different background than Malcolm X, but also the notion that Martin Luther King Jr. was also operating a lot of spaces where he had to deal with white middle class people, whereas Malcolm X is speaking more towards fellow African Americans. In particular, Malcolm X becomes a little bit of a controversial figure because he calls out the idea of nonviolence. He goes, "Well, nonviolence is all well and good, but I believe that if somebody's trying to hurt you, you have the right to self-defense." So, he was really challenging how useful nonviolence was as a tool if it was in effect getting some activists killed. Because of that, because he said that, then the interpretation was in a mainstream media, oh, he he wants to to be able to, you know, arm everybody and start killing white people. After Malcolm X visited Mecca in 1964 as an attempt to understand mainstream Islam, he does start to drift away from the Nation of Islam interpretation more towards a traditional Islam and he starts to soften his rhetoric and kind of promote a little bit more unity, especially after seeing the very great diversity of Muslim people worldwide on his pilgrimage to Mecca and he is assassinated while speaking in 1965. Most people attribute his assassination to the Nation of Islam arguing that there was a significant rift between Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam and that he had grown a little bit too prominent and powerful for their liking. Other people float theories that his assassination was the result of other groups, but Malcolm X nevertheless becomes a martyr for the civil rights movement at that time. Now, Malcolm X's emphasis on nonviolence only working to a certain point and that people should have the right to self-defense comes to be explored more with the founding of the Black Panther Party, a group that In Oakland, that is founded in 1966. For the Black Panther Party, Malcolm X's message of self-defense made a lot of compelling sense. In particular... African Americans living in Oakland experienced a lot of police brutality and so for them the idea of self-defense was very appealing. Unfortunately this focusing on exercising rights including second amendment rights to own weapons, exercising this notion of self-defense that they're not just going to passively be attacked meant that the FBI and local police oftentimes targeted Panther leaders for violence and many Black Panther leaders were actually killed in shootouts. However the Black Panther Party is not just focused on self-defense, but also community improvement. So the Black Panther Party also runs health clinics, schools, after-school programs for children to try to focus on building up and bettering their community. This is part of the Black Power movement. This idea of empowerment, right, empowering the community to improve and grow, taking pride in your Black cultural heritage, and we see this as well in mainstream Black culture in the 1960s. The Black is Beautiful movement to ch- this notion that African Americans had to maintain kind of Western beauty standards to be considered beautiful, the embrace of natural hair texture and the hairstyle of the Afro, a switch from calling African Americans Negro, which was the older label used to instead Afro or African American comes during this time. Think about it, you've probably heard songs like Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm and I'm Proud by James Brown. This is all coming out of this era, right? To take pride in African American identity and the uniqueness and their heritage. And And also to focus on bettering their communities. And in particular, urban areas in the United States were still suffering despite Lyndon Baines Johnson's war on poverty. Lots of issues were fairly unique to these urban areas. There was a relative lack of jobs. So even if you had job skills training programs under the war on poverty, if there's no jobs for for you to use those skills in, that doesn't help you. There's also very poor quality housing in a lot of urban areas because of a lack of investment and maintenance and infrastructure. And in many northern and western cities throughout the 1960s, there were a series of riots for somewhat different but very similar reasons. Harlem experiences the first of these 1960s riots in 1964. This riot is sparked by accusations of police brutality against a young African American man. Watts in Los Angeles in 1965 happens after a traffic stop by a white cop of African Americans. And the Watts riots is among the most damaging. 50,000 people riot, 35 people are killed, and it takes 15,000 police and National Guardsmen to rest- order. In the end, the Watts riots resulted in $30 million of damage. In 1967, the cities of Detroit and Newark both experienced riots. In Detroit, a police raid on a bar called a Blind Pig or an illegal underground bar in which veterans are celebrating homecoming from Vietnam ends up sparking a wave of riots across the city, leaving 43 dead and hundreds of millions of dollars in damage. With all of these riots spreading out across these cities, and again, notes that these are not southern cities. These are cities in the north and the west. Congress felt the need to examine this wave of riots. And in 1968, the Kerner Commission, named after Otto Kerner, who was the lead investigator in this congressional committee, publishes the Kerner Report. And the Kerner Report said that all of these riots in these different places happened because of poverty and systemic racism. That conditions in inner city areas that rioted were not going to improve unless the nation moved to address these chronic problems. As the Kerner Report famously stated, our nation is moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. What's depressing is if you look at the Kerner Commission Report, which comes out, by the way, right around the time that we see another wave of riots following the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968, if you look at the Kerner Report and you look at reports from riots happening during World War II in 1943, riots that happened after World War I and. 1919, the report after the Rodney King riots in 1992 in Los Angeles, and you strip them out of the dates and the specifics, their recommendations is much the same. They all diagnose issues of chronic poverty and systemic racism, and they all recommend the same things, focus on improving equality. And unfortunately, that's very difficult to do, and that takes a lot of long-term investment and long-term political will. Nevertheless, this is going to be the time period where we see a shift in the civil rights movement, away from things like focusing on voter rights and more towards socioeconomic goals. So in other words, even people like Martin Luther King Jr. begin to argue for federal action in developing. Urban areas, job programs, focusing on poverty. So there's this shift away from focusing on legal and political rights to instead socioeconomic equality. And that, as well, which again is not an easy, quick fix, helps to radicalize the movement because what does that mean? How do you ensure equality of condition in these spaces? Similarly, in colleges across the United States, we see radicalization of white college students. In particular, we have the formation what we call the New Left, which is kind of a weird name because the New Left isn't really all that new. In many ways, you can see the influences of many older movements, like the Democratic Republican Party in the 1790s, abolitionists in the 1800s, Bohemians in the early 1900s, all kind of influencing this movement within more leftist politics. For people who identified as part of the New Left, which included Black Power activists and these white college students, they don't talk about economic or social citizenship. Instead, they talk about how average Americans are increasingly powerless and isolated in the face of a government that is dominated by bureaucracy and by an elite few. They saw that the government was an active agent in perpetuating inequality. They believed that as society remained deeply consumerist. And again, the average American citizen didn't have any agency or political power that this would not fix the problems of inequality. Now, despite this, they don't identify as communists. They're still very much anti-communist. But they do agitate for a more authentic and responsive government with mass participation of all Americans and little exclusion of any group. So when it comes to college students, groups like the Students for Democratic Society or SDS, founded in 1962, start to mobilize this as a political movement. In their founding statement, the Port Huron Statement, the students for a Democratic Society criticized the status quo, arguing for a truly participatory democracy. The SDS grew rapidly in college campuses across the United States, growing to about 8,000 members by the end of 1962. And in fact, universities will play a big role in motivating students to be involved in civil rights and protests. More than 7 million students were in college by 1968, a number that was historically unprecedented, again, driven by a relatively prosperous economy. And a lot of these students kind of gain their first exposure to different ideas and to protest movements at these college campuses. One of the earliest expression of mass student movements takes place at UC Berkeley in 1964, when Berkeley begins to restrict free speech on school grounds. This prompts a response from students of different political affiliations for having their speech squelched. And this will eventually evolve not into just a conversation on freedom of speech on college campuses, but also a critique of the modern university system, which they argued had strayed from its original mission to educate young people on critical thinking and to be productive citizens, and instead was now a much more impersonal factory-like apparatus, churning out these graduates, but basically just for jobs. Berkeley, after a series of protests by students, repealed the free speech ban in 1965, and a lot of these students impressed with the power that they had been able to exert and win from UC Berkeley, become involved in other activist movements as well. Now, one of the movements that a lot of college students will get involved with is the anti-war movement against Vietnam. So how do we get to the point where we have a full-blown anti-war movement against American involvement in Vietnam? Where we last left off was talking about the United States adopting a policy of counterinsurgency in Vietnam. Presidents like John F. Kennedy sending in military advisors to help train the South Vietnamese army to be able to put down this internal rebellion against South Vietnamese rule. However, where Johnson starts to escalate this this war is with the Gulf of Tonkin. Now, Johnson had not been a stranger to expressing support for military involvement. For example, in the Dominican Republic, 22,000 American troops were sent to intervene in a power struggle in Dominican politics, particularly, however, in favor of a more right-wing, American-friendly government versus a elected left-wing president who had been overthrown in 1963. Johnson argued that if we did not intervene and prevent the more leftist politician from being elected, that this would turn into another Cuba. But nobody really expected America to get very much more involved in Vietnam. In 1964, a incident in the Gulf of Tonkin off of Vietnam between a North Vietnamese boat and an American ship launched Americans into greater involvement in Vietnam. The North Vietnamese boat was accused of firing on an American naval ship and Congress responded by passing a resolution, the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which gave the president the authority to use, and a quote, all necessary measures to repel armed attack, end quote. There will be no formal declaration of war in Vietnam. This is the closest we get to declaring war. And in 2005, declassified documents revealed that the Gulf of Tonkin incident had not, in fact, happened at all. So this incident was fabricated as a way for the United States to justify getting more deeply involved in Vietnam. While the Congress giving this authority to President Johnson had meant that uh, deploying airstrikes and ground troops was recommended, it's not actually until early 1965 that we start to see the escalation of American military involvement in Vietnam following a Viet Cong attack on an American base in South Vietnam. The Vietnam War and American involvement in it escalates very quickly. By 1968, more than a half million American troops were in Vietnam and more bombs were dropped on Vietnam than by all combatants during World War II combined. So American troops are increasingly sent to Vietnam and this conflict was getting increasingly deadly. The human costs of the war was very great to both sides, both combatants and non-combatants. In an attempt to deprive the enemy Viet Cong of supply lines and resources, the United States deployed tools like napalm and other chemicals which were designed to burn and destroy farmland, villages, and coincidentally also any humans. They came in contact with probably one of the more famous images associated with the use of napalm is one in which you see Vietnamese civilians fleeing a very fiery background, and one little girl in particular has had her clothes burned entirely off. Napalm did terrible things to people's bodies. One of the frustrations in Vietnam was that it was very difficult given the guerrilla nature of the war, for American troops to tell friend from foe in Vietnam. And the frustration over this blurring of lines between combatants and non-combatants meant that you had incidents like Miele happen. So in 1968, in the village of Miele, American troops launched an attack on unarmed civilians, arguing that these civilians in Miele and Mikai, two neighboring villages, had supported the Viet Cong on scant evidence. Many women were gang raped and mutilated before their death, and somewhere between 347 and 504 unarmed civilians were killed by American troops. This is a war atrocity, again, attack on unarmed civilians. When one of these American soldiers protested this while it was happening and tried to stop it, he was ostracized or singled out for ridicule and reprisal by his fellow troops. And it would take a while before the mass at My would become more public knowledge despite the fact that there is an unprecedented amount of recording and televising happening of the Vietnam War. This is probably the first major American conflict in which television plays a big role there are a lot of news reports coming out of Vietnam nightly there's not a whole lot of censorship on the part of government in terms of what can be shown on evening news and for many Americans this level of media exposure to the Vietnamese War, and this very unfiltered coverage of the war contributed to the growing unpopularity of the war. People were shocked and dismayed by this death and destruction, especially once atrocities like Mele came to light. Americans also were very much aware of the soldiers who were killed or missing in combat because those reports were frequently posted. For many, there was also the concern of who was fighting in the war, because If you were a college student, you could get an exemption because there was a draft on. But however, if you were a college student, you were given a pass. You were not drafted. But what this meant is that the people who ended up Being drafted and who had to go, who had to enlist, who had no exemptions, were poor people, the working class, and people of color. So they're the ones disproportionately suffering from being drafted, suffering from going to combat, suffering from being wounded or killed. And so there was also this critique as well that this was a war that the people who were fighting in it did not really have that big of a stake in, right? They were kind of fighting a rich man's war. Many protests in the anti war movement hinge on both the utility of this war, that we're not making adequate progress in Vietnam, and that it was distracting us from domestic issues like, for example, poverty. Martin Luther King Jr. publicly condemned the war starting in 1967, and the very first anti-war protest on a large scale held in Washington, D.C. in 1965, about 25,000 people, was the first indication that there would not be a lot of popular support for the war. Many people, like SDS leader Carl Oglesby, critiqued the involvement of the United States in Vietnam, arguing that this was part of a decolonization process, that our commitment to self-determination should mean that we stay out of Vietnam and its decisions about the future direction of their nation. He critiqued this blind adoption of anti-communist containment policies in the case of Vietnam. Many young men protested the war by burning their draft cards or fleeing to Canada to avoid being drafted into the military. And in one of the biggest anti-war protests in October of 1967, 100,000 people marched into Washington, D.C., eventually marching over to the Pentagon and placing flowers in the gun barrels of the military police troops that were there to instill order in this protest. So Vietnam is going to get worse before it gets better. And if you're one of my students, you will notice that you had posted for you in this week's folder, a episode of a documentary series called Vietnam A Television History. I highly recommend this whole series, which takes a look at the importance of television as a medium in telling the story of the Vietnam War and in shaping American reactions to the Vietnam War. One episode in particular to watch to understand the anti-war movement and how all these different movements of social protests come together in the late 1960s is one of the later episodes titled Homefront USA. You can find it by looking under YouTube for the term Vietnam Television History Homefront USA. It's a very compelling episode. I highly recommend it. It uses a lot of great footage from anti-war protests and other movements in the late 60s to talk about how Vietnam becomes increasingly unpopular as we don't make any progress there and as the body count grows ever higher. We'll focus a little bit more on the late 60s and social movements. We come back next time. Until next time, I'm Dr. S. Mocker.